Chapter Twenty Five of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abris. She by H. Rider Haggard. The Spirit of Life. I did as I was bid and in fear and trembling felt myself guided over the edge of the stone. I sprawled my legs out, but could touch nothing. I am going to fall, I gasped. Nay, let thyself go, and trust to me, answered Asha. Now, if the position is considered, it will be easily understood that this was a greater demand upon my confidence than was justified by my knowledge of Asha's character. For all I knew, she might be in the very act of consigning me to a horrible doom. But in life, we sometimes have to lay our faith upon strange altars, and so it was now. Let thyself go, she cried, and having no choice, I did. I felt myself slide a pace or two down the sloping surface of the rock, and then pass into the air, and the thought flashed through my brain that I was lost. But no, in another instant my feet struck against a rocky floor, and I felt that I was standing upon something solid, and out of reach of the wind, which I could hear singing away overhead. As I stood there thanking heaven for these small mercies, there was a slip and a scuffle, and down came Leo alongside of me. "'Hello, old fellow,' he called out. "'Are you there? This is getting interesting, is it not?' Just then, with a terrific yell, Job arrived, right on the top of us, knocking us both down. By the time we had struggled to our feet again, Asha was standing among us, and bidding us light the lamps, which fortunately remained uninjured, and also did the spare jar of oil. I got out my box of wax matches, and they struck as merrily there, in that awful place, as they could have done in a London drawing-room. In a couple of minutes, both the lamps were alight and revealed a curious scene. We were huddled together in a rocky chamber, some ten feet square, and scared enough we looked, that is, except Asha, who was standing calmly with her arms folded and waiting for the lamps to burn up. The chamber appeared to be partly natural and partly hollowed out of the top of the cone. The roof of the natural part was formed of the swinging stone, and that of the back part of the chamber, which sloped downwards, was hewn from live rock. For the rest, the place was warm and dry, a perfect haven of rest compared to the giddy pinnacle above, and the quivering spur that shot out to meet it in mid-air. So, said she, safely have we come though once I feared that the rocking stone would fall with you, and precipitate you into the bottomless depths beneath, for I do believe that the cleft goeth down to the very womb of the world. The rock whereon the stone resteth hath crumbled beneath the swinging weight, and now that he, nodding towards Job, who was sitting on the floor, feebly wiping his forehead with a red cotton pocket handkerchief, whom they rightly call the pig, for as a pig is he stupid, hath let fall the plank, it will not be easy to return across the gulf, and to that end must I make a plan. But now rest a while, 
and look upon this place. What think ye that it is? We know not, I answered. Wouldst thou believe, O holy, that once a man did choose this airy nest for a daily habitation, and did here endure for many years, leaving it only but one day in every twelve to seek food and water and oil that the people brought, more than he could carry, and laid as an offering in the mouth of the tunnel through which we passed hither? We looked up wonderingly, and she continued. Yet so it was. There was a man. Newt, he named himself, who, though he lived in the latter days, had of the wisdom of the sons of Kor. A hermit was he, and a philosopher, and greatly skilled in the secrets of nature. And he it was who discovered the fire that I shall show you, which is nature's blood and life, and also that he who bathed therein and breathed thereof should live while nature lives. But like unto thee, O holy, this man, Newt, would not turn his knowledge to account. Ill, he said, was it for man to live, for man was born to die. Therefore did he tell his secret to none, and therefore did he come and live here, where the seeker after life must pass, and was revered of the Amahagar of the day as holy, and a hermit. And when first I came to this country, knowest thou how I came, Calicrates? Another time I will tell thee, for it is a strange tale. I heard of this philosopher, and waited for him when he came to fetch his food, and returned with him hither, though greatly did I fear to tread the gulf. Then did I beguile him with my beauty and my wit, and flatter him with my tongue, so that he led me down and showed me the fire, and told me the secrets of the fire, but he would not suffer me to step therein. And fearing lest he should slay me, I refrained, knowing that the man was very old and soon would die. And I returned, having learned from him all that he knew of the wonderful spirit of the world. And that was much, for the man was wise and very ancient, and by purity and abstinence, and the contemplations of his innocent mind, had worn thin the veil between that which we see and the great invisible truths the whisper of whose wings at times we hear as they sweep through the grass air of the world. Then, it was but a very few days after, I met thee, my Calicrates, who hadst wandered hither with the beautiful Egyptian Amenatus, and I learned to love for the first and last time, once and for ever, so that it entered into my mind to come hither with thee and receive the gift of life for thee and me. Therefore came we, with that Egyptian, who would not be left behind, and, behold, we found the old man Nut lying but newly dead. There he lay, and his white beard covered him like a garment. And she pointed to a spot near where I was sitting, but surely he hath long since crumbled into dust, and the wind hath borne his ashes hence. Here I put out my hand and felt in the dust, and presently my fingers touched something. It was a human tooth, very yellow, but sound. I held it up and showed it to Asha, who laughed. Yes, she said, it is his without a doubt. Behold what remaineth of Newt, and the wisdom of Newt, one little tooth. And yet that man had all life at his command, and for his conscience' sake would have none of it. Well, he lay 
there, newly dead. And we descended, whither I shall lead you, and then, gathering up all my courage, and courting death that I might perchance win so glorious a crown of life, I stepped into the flames, and behold, life such as ye can never know until ye feel it also, flowed into me, and I came forth undying and lovely beyond imagining. Then did I stretch out mine arms to thee, Calicrates, and bid thee take thine immortal bride, and behold, as I spoke, thou, blinded by my beauty, didst turn from me, and throw thine arms about the neck of Amenatus. And then a great fury filled me, and made me mad. And I seized the javelin that thou didst bear, and stabbed thee, so that there, at my very feet, in the place of life, thou didst groan and go down into death. I knew not then that I had strength to slay with mine eyes, and by the power of my will, therefore in my madness, slew I with the javelin. It will be observed that Asha's account of the death of Calicrates differs materially from that written on the pot-shred by Amenartus. The writing on the shred says, Then in her rage did she smite him by her magic, and he died. We never ascertained which was the correct version, but it will be remembered that the body of Calicrates had a spear wound in the breast, which seems conclusive, unless, indeed, it was inflicted after death. Another thing that we never ascertained was how the two women, she and the Egyptian Amenartus, were able to bear the corpse of the man they both loved across the dread gulf and along the shaking spur. What a spectacle the two distracted creatures must have presented in their grief and loveliness as they toiled along that awful place with the dead man between them. Probably, however, the passage was easier than L.H.H. And when thou wast dead, ah, I wept, because I was undying, and thou wast dead. I wept there in the place of life, so that had I been mortal any more, my heart had surely broken. And she, the swart Egyptian, she cursed me by her gods. By Osiris did she curse me, and by Isis, by Nephthys, and by Anubis, by Seketh, the cat-headed, and by Set calling down evil on me, evil and everlasting desolation. Ah, I can see her dark face now, lowering over me like a storm, but she could not hurt me, and I, I know not if I could hurt her. I did not try it, it was not to me then, so together we bore thee hence, and afterwards I sent her, the Egyptian, away through the swamps, and it seems that she lived to bear a son, and to write the tale that should lead thee, her husband, back to me, her rival, and thy murderess. Such is the tale, my love, and now is the hour at hand that shall set a crown upon it. Like all things on the earth, it is compounded of evil and of good, more of evil than of good, perchance, and writ in letters of blood. It is the truth, not have I hidden from thee, Calicrates. And now one thing before the final moment of thy trial. We go down in the presence of death, for life and death are very near together. And who knoweth that might happen, which should separate us from another space of waiting? I am but a woman, and no prophetess, and I cannot read the future. But this I know, for I learned it from the lips of the wise man Newt that my life is but prolonged and made more bright. 
it cannot live for ye. Therefore, before we go, tell me, O Calicrates, that of a truth thou dost forgive me, and dost love me from thy heart. See, Calicrates, much evil have I done. Perchance it was evil but two nights ago to strike that girl who loved thee cold in death. But she disobeyed me and angered me, professing misfortune to me, and I smote. Be careful when power comes to thee also, lest thou too shouldst smite in thine anger or thy jealousy, for unconquerable strength is a sore weapon in the hands of erring man. Yea, I have sinned. Out of the bitterness born of a great love have I sinned. But yet do I know the good from the evil, nor is my heart altogether hardened. Thy love, Calicrates, shall be the great of my redemption, even as aforetime my passion was the path down which I ran to evil. For deep love unsatisfied is the hell of noble hearts and a portion of the accursed, but love that is mirror-backed more perfect from the soul of our desired doth fashion wings to lift us above ourselves, and makes us what we might be. Therefore, Calicrates, take me by the hand, and lift my veil with no more fear than though I were some peasant girl, and not the wisest and most beauteous woman in this wide world, and look me in the eyes, and tell me that thou dost forgive me with all thine heart, and that will all thine heart thou dost worship me. She paused, and the strange tenderness in her voice seemed to hover round us like a memory. I know that the sound of it moved me more even than her words. It was so very human, so very womanly. Leo, too, was strangely touched. Hitherto he had been fascinated against his better judgment, something as a bird is fascinated by a snake, but now I think that all this passed away, and he realized that he really loved this strange and glorious creature, as, alas, I loved her also. At any rate, I saw his eyes fill with tears, and he stepped swiftly to her and undid the gauzy veil, and then took her by the hand, and gazing into her deep eyes, said aloud, Asha, I love thee with all my heart, and so far as forgiveness is possible, I forgive thee the death of Ustain. For the rest, it is between thee and thy maker. I know not of it. I only know that I love thee as I never loved before, and that I will cleave to thee to the end. Now, answered Asha, with proud humility. Now when my lord doth speak thus royally, and give with so free a hand, it cannot become me to lag behind in words, and be beggared of my generosity. Behold, and she took his hand and placed it upon her shapely head, and then bent herself slowly down till one knee for an instant touched the ground. Behold, in token of submission do I bow me, to my lord, behold, and she kissed him on the lips. In token of my wifely love do I kiss my lord, behold, and she laid her hand upon his heart. By the sin I sinned, by my lonely centuries of waiting wherewith it was wiped out, by the great love wherewith I love, and by the spirit, the eternal thing that doth beget all life, from whom it ebbs, to whom it doth return again, I swear. I swear, even in this most holy hour of completed womanhood, that I will abandon evil and cherish good. 
I swear that I will be ever guided by thy voice in the straightest path of duty. I swear that I will eschew ambition, and through all my length of endless days set wisdom over me as a guiding star to lead me on to truth and a knowledge of the right. I swear also that I will honor and will cherish thee, Calicrates, who hast been swept by the wave of time back into my arms, eh, till the very end, come it soon or late. I swear, nay, I will swear no more, for what are words, yet shalt thou learn that Asha hath no false tongue. So I have sworn, and thou, my holy, at witness to my oath, here too are we wed, my husband, with the gloom for bridal canopy, wed till the end of all things. Here do we write our marriage vows upon the rushing winds which shall bear them up to heaven, and round and continually round this rolling world. And for a bridal gift I crown thee with my beauty's starry crown, and enduring life, and wisdom without measure, and wealth that none can count. Behold, the great ones of the earth shall creep about thy feet, and its fair women shall cover up their eyes because of the shining glory of thy countenance, and its wise ones shall be abased before thee. Thou shalt read the hearts of men as an open writing, and hither and thither shalt thou lead them as thy pleasure listeth. Like that old sphinx of Egypt, shalt thou sit aloft from age to age, and ever shall they cry to thee to solve the riddle of thy greatness that doth not pass away, and ever shalt thou mock them with thy silence. Behold, once more I kiss thee, and by that kiss I give to thee dominion over sea and earth, over the peasant in his hovel, over the monarch in his palace halls, and cities crowned with towers, and those who breathe therein. Wherever the sun shakes out his spears, and the lonesome waters mirror up the moon, wherever storms roll, and heaven's painted bows arc in the sky, from the pure north clad in snows, across the middle spaces of the world, to where the amorous south, lying like a bride upon her blue couch of seas, breathes in sighs made sweet with the odor of myrtles. There shall thy power pass, and thy dominion find a home. Nor sickness, nor icy-fingered fear, nor sorrow, and pale waste of form, and mind hovering ever over humanity, shall so much as shadow thee with the shadow of their wings. As a god shalt thou be, holding good and evil in the hollow of thy hand, and I, even I, I humble myself before thee. Such is the power of love, and such is the bridal gift I give unto thee, Calicrates, my lord and lord of all. And now it is done. Now for thee I lose my virgin zone. And come storm, come shine, come good, come evil, come life, come death, it never, never can be undone. For of a truth that which is, is and being done, is done for a, and cannot be altered. I have said, let us hence, that all things may be accomplished in their order. And taking one of the lamps, she advanced towards the end of the chamber that was roofed in by the swaying stone where she halted. 
we followed her, and perceived that in the wall of the cone there was a stair, or, to be more accurate, that some projecting knobs of rock had been so shaped as to form a good imitation of a stair. Down this, Asha began to climb, springing from step to step, like a camoise, and after her we followed with less grace. When we had descended some fifteen or sixteen steps, we found that they ended in a tremendous rocky slope, running first outwards and then inwards, like the slope of an inverted cone or tunnel. The slope was very steep and often precipitous, but it was nowhere impassable, and by the light of the lamps we went down it with no great difficulty, though it was gloomy work enough travelling on thus, no one of us knew whither, into the dead heart of a volcano. As we went, however, I took the precaution of noting our route as well as I could, and this was not so very difficult owing to the extraordinary and most fantastic shape of the rocks that were strewn about, many of which in that dim light looked more like the grim faces carven upon medieval gargoyles than ordinary boulders. For a long time we travelled on thus, half an hour I should say, till, after we had descended for many hundreds of feet, I perceived that we were reaching the point of the inverted cone. In another minute we were there, and found that at the very apex of the funnel was a passage, so low and narrow that we had to stoop as we crept along it in Indian file. After some fifty yards of this creeping, the passage suddenly widened into a cave, so huge that we could see neither the roof nor the sides. We only knew that it was a cave by the echo of our tread and the perfect quiet of the heavy air. On we went for many minutes in absolute awed silence, like lost souls in the depths of Hades, Asha's white and ghost-like form flitting in front of us, till once more the place ended in a passage which opened into a second cavern much smaller than the first. Indeed, we could clearly make out the arch and stony banks of the second cave, and from their rent and jagged appearance discovered that, like the first long passage down which we had passed through the cliff before we reached the quivering spur, it had, to all appearance, been torn in the bowels of the rocky by the terrific force of some explosive gas. At length this cave ended in a third passage, through which gleamed a faint glow of light. I heard Asha give a sigh of relief as this light dawned upon us. It is well, she said prepare to enter the very womb of the earth, wherein she doth conceive the life that you see brought forth in man and beast, ay, and in every tree and flower. Swiftly she sped along, and after her we stumbled as best we might, our hearts filled like a cup with mingled dread and curiosity. What were we about to see? We passed down the tunnel, stronger and stronger the light beamed, reaching us in great flashes, like the rays from a lighthouse, as one by one they are thrown wide upon the darkness of the waters. Nor was this all, for with the flashes came a soul-shaking sound like that of thunder and of crashing trees. Now we were through it, and, oh heavens! We stood in a third cavern, some fifty feet in length by perhaps as great a height and thirty wide, it was carpeted with fine white sand, and its walls had been worn smooth by the action of I know not what. The cavern was not dark like the others, 
it was filled with a soft glow of rose-colored light more beautiful to look on than anything that can be conceived but at first we saw no flashes and heard no more of the thunderous sound presently however as we stood in amaze gazing at the marvelous sight and wondering whence the rosy radiance flowed a dread and beautiful thing happened across the far end of the cavern with a grinding and crashing noise a noise so dreadful and awe-inspiring that we all trembled and job actually sank to his knees there flamed out an awful cloud or pillar of fire like a rainbow many-colored and like the lightning bright for a space perhaps forty seconds it flamed and roared thus turning slowly round and round and then by degrees the terrible noise ceased and with the fire it passed away i know not where leaving behind it the same rosy glow that we had first seen draw near draw near cried asha with a voice of thrilling exultation behold the very fountain and heart of life as it beats in the bosom of the great world behold the substance from which all things draw their energy the bright spirit of the globe without which it cannot live but must grow cold and dead as the dead moon draw near and wash you in the living flames and take their virtue into your poor frames in all its virgin strength not as it now feebly glows within your bosoms filtered thereto through all the fine strainers of a thousand intermediate lives but as it is here in the very fount and seat of earthly being we followed her through the rosy glow up to the head of the cave till at last we stood before the spot where the great pulse beat and the great flame passed and as we went we became sensible of a wild and splendid exhilaration of a glorious sense of such a fierce intensity of life that the most buoyant moments of our strength seemed flat and tame and feeble beside it it was the mere effluvium of the flame the subtle ether that it cast off as it passed working on us and making us feel strong as giants and swift as eagles we reached the head of the cave and gazed at each other in the glorious glow and laughed aloud even job laughed and he had not laughed for a week in the lightness of our hearts and the divine intoxication of our brains i know that i felt as though all the varied genius of which the human intellect is capable had descended upon me i could have spoken in blank verse of shakespearean beauty all sorts of great ideas flashed through my mind it was as though the bonds of my flesh had been loosened and left the spirit free to soar to the empyrean of its native power the sensations that poured in upon me are indescribable i seemed to live more keenly to reach to a higher joy and sip the goblet of a subtler thought than ever it had been my lot to do before i was another and most glorified self and all the avenues of the possible were for a space laid open to the footsteps of the real then suddenly whilst i rejoiced in the splendid vigor of a new-founded self from far far away there came a dreadful muttering noise that grew and grew to a crash and a roar which combined in itself all that is terrible and yet splendid in the possibilities of sound nearer it came and nearer yet till it was close upon us rolling down like all the thunder wheels of heaven behind the horses of the lightning 
on it came and with it came the glorious blinding cloud of many-coloured light and stood before us for a space turning as it seemed to us slowly round and round and then accompanied by its attendant pomp and sound passed away i know not whither so astonishing was the wondrous sight that one and all of us save she who stood up and stretched her hands towards the fire sank down before it and hid our faces in the sand when it was gone asha spoke now calicrates she said the mighty moment is at hand when the great flame comes again thou must stand in it first throw aside thy garments for it will burn them though thee it will not hurt thou must stand in the flame while thy senses will endure and when it embraces thee suck the fire down into thy very heart and let it leap and play around thy every part so that thou lose no moiety of its virtue hearest thou me calicrates i hear thee asha answered leo but of a truth i am no coward but i doubt me of that raging flame how know i that it will not utterly destroy me so that i lose myself and lose thee also nevertheless will i do it he added asha thought for a minute and then said it is not wonderful that thou shouldst doubt tell me calicrates if thou seest me stand in the flame and come forth unharmed wilt thou enter also yes he answered i will enter even if it slay me i have said that i will enter now and that will i also i cried what my holy she laughed aloud methought that thou wouldst not of length of days why how is this nay i know not i answered but there is that in my heart that calleth me to taste of the flame and live it is well she said thou art not altogether lost in folly see now i will for the second time bathe me in this living bath fain would i add to my beauty and my length of days if that be possible if it be not possible at least it cannot harm me also she continued after a momentary pause is there another and a deeper cause why i would once again dip me in the flame when first i tasted of its virtue full was my heart of passion and of hatred of that egyptian amenartus and therefore despite my strivings to be rid thereof have passion and hatred been stamped upon my soul from that sad hour to this but now it is otherwise now is my mood a happy mood and filled am i with the purest part of thought and so would i ever be therefore calicrates will i once more wash and make me pure and clean and yet more fit for thee therefore also when thou dost in turn stand in the fire empty all thy heart of evil and let soft contentment hold the balance of thy mind shake loose thy spirit's wings and take thy stand upon the utter verge of holy contemplation a dream upon thy mother's kiss and turn thee towards the vision of the highest good that hath ever swept on silver wings across the silence of thy dreams for from the germ of what thou art in that dread moment shall grow the fruit of what thou shalt be for all unreckoned time now prepare thee prepare 
even as though thy last hour were at hand, and thou wast to cross the land of shadows, and not through the gates of glory into the realms of life made beautiful. Prepare, I say. End of chapter 25 Recording by Red Abrus, January 2008